Uh, good morning, everyone. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark. The book of Mark. And may I add, right at the outset, I have never had so many expressions of love in all my life as I have had this morning. Obviously, something kicked in from that Wednesday night uh, care group study. Mike Castle, in particular, was uh, quite affectionate this morning. So you might want to catch him before that wears off. Uh, (laughs) You know it's true, Mike. You know it's true. Mark chapter 2, our text for today begins in the 18th verse. I'm going to begin reading there and go right through to the end of the, the chapter. That will be the 28th verse. So again, the book of Mark, chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wine skins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest. And ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Let's pause and seek the Lord's blessing upon his word this day. Our Father, again, we enter your presence, so thankful that we can do so through your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even now, we remember the Phillips family, commending them yet again to your sovereign care and your fatherly goodness. We pray that you would come now, send forth your Holy Spirit, and bestow upon us times of refreshing as we hear your word, as we hear of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we hear of your precious and beautiful gospel. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive. We ask it in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. Uh, there, was a, there was a film some years ago called The Chariots of Fire. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure most of us will have seen that film. A little bit of a sleeper, but a, but a pretty good film. And uh, it basically relates the stories of two men, a Scotsman and an Englishman, two athletes who compete at the 1924 Paris Olympics. And it is a study in contrast is what the film is. On the one hand, you have a a man named Harold Abraham, and on the other hand, you have a man, an athlete, sprinter, named Eric Little. Uh, A study in contrasts. Uh, Two very different men who approach sprinting 
their pursuit of, of athletic excellence in a very different fashion. This reflects deeper in terms of their approach to life, which reflects even deeper in terms of their approach to God. And so Harold Abraham, on one occasion when asked, why do you run? He responds with this statement, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. You see, here is a a man who through his running, his, his competing, sought to justify himself, sought to prove himself. And this reflected deeper on his approach to life. It reflected deeper on his approach to God. Uh, Here was a man who believed he had to legitimize his existence in God's sight. It reflects reflects on on those, a, a, a widespread mentality among us today. It reflects on those who have this mindset, this idea, that God's acceptance of me is based ultimately on my performance. It's based on this presupposition that God accepts me because I obey, and therefore I need to prove myself to God. And it leads invariably to a state of anxiety and uncertainty and perplexity, because no man can ever prove himself enough before Almighty God. I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. In marked contrast, you have Eric Little, who was asked on one occasion, why do you run? And his simple response was as follows. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. You see, here is a man who was not trying to justify himself before God. Here was a man who had nothing to prove. Here was a man, win or lose, really was insignificant to him. He ran for one reason, to glorify God. That is how Scripture tells us we are to approach God. We do not approach God on this presupposition, God, God's acceptance of me depends on my obedience. No. We approach God on this firm foundation. God accepts me not because I obey. God accepts me because Christ obeyed. Do you see it? Two entirely different approaches to God. The one, God accepts me because I obey. It leads inevitably to bondage. God accepts me because Christ obeyed. It leads inevitably to, certainly to, freedom. Freedom. It is, in essence, the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification is the most precious, the most beautiful truth in all of Scripture. Uh, Scripture makes it plain, the Bible makes it clear that uh, when I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, I become one with him, wed with him. It is an indissoluble union. It can never be dissolved. It can never be altered. It can never be changed. Because I am one with him, all that is true of Christ is now true of me. And so the Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty for my sin at Calvary's cross Because I am one with the Lord Jesus Christ, I have therefore paid that penalty. Because Christ has paid it on my behalf. And I am now one with him. And on top of that, the Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect sinless life. He he obeyed the law. He fulfilled all righteousness. 
And now, because I am one with the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, I get his righteousness. God reckons the righteousness of Christ to me. And so God does not accept me because I obey. God accepts me because Christ obeyed. This is crucial for us to understand, and it, and it somewhat it perplexes us. It's, it's, it's difficult for us to grasp because here's the reality, and it's a reality that often escapes us. The doctrine of justification does not change us. It must be clear, so clear, crystal clear. The doctrine of justification does not change us. It is not a change in us. It is a change in our standing. It is a change in who we are in God's sight because we've been made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. The German reformer, Martin Luther, illustrated this well when he described those medieval farms back in the 15th, 16th centuries and the farmer's custom of collecting the refuse from their barnyard animals. They would collect this refuse into piles all over their farm and use it to fertilize their fields. Well, you can imagine how ugly that is. Uh, you can imagine the stench, the stench, all these piles of refuse scattered all over these, these little farms. And Luther said, well, but come November, come December, what happens? Uh, the chill comes, the frost comes, the cold comes, and finally you get that first uh, blanket of snow. And covering the entire landscape is this pure, pristine, white, perfect blanket of snow. Here's the question. What, what lies beneath the blanket of snow? The dunghills are still there. They haven't gone away. My friend, that is the doctrine of justification. Do you understand that? God does not accept you. He does not accept me because we perform, because we obey. I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. He does not accept us because of our obedience or because of our performance. He accepts us in Christ because the Lord Jesus Christ obeyed. And when God justifies me, he doesn't change me. Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 4. This is, this is one of my favorite little phrases in all of Scripture. God justifies the ungodly. God doesn't clean you up and then justify you. God doesn't try to make you perfect and then justify you. God doesn't weigh your obedience in the balance and then justify you. God doesn't examine your life to see whether or not you deserve it and then justify you. God justifies the ungodly. He justifies sinners. You see, it is a change in our status. It is a change in our position. And when we understand the essence of the gospel, we understand the essence of this precious doctrine, the doctrine of justification, it frees us to live. That is life indeed. To know that my standing in God's sight is not performance-based. To know that my acceptance with God is not based on anything I've done or haven't done. But to know that I am God's beloved because I am united by faith and by the Holy Spirit with the one who is indeed God's beloved the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's the gospel. When we lose sight of that, we fall into legalism. And we fall prey to this idea, I have, I have to please God 
and that somehow I can manipulate God through my behavior. What we have essentially, if you think still in terms of these two categories, is the difference between bad religion and good religion. Don't be frightened by the word religion. Uh, The word religion is morally neutral. It's used more often than not in a negative sense today. We hear a lot of people running around saying, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. I don't have time to get into that now, but it's completely misinformed. The term religious or religion is morally neutral. There is bad religion and there is good religion. Bad religion builds on this premise, this presupposition, God accepts me because I obey him. Good religion, true religion, builds on this firm foundation. No, God accepts me because Christ obeys. Now in our text, the verses I've read in Mark chapter 2, do you know what the Lord Jesus gives us? He gives us a glimpse, a pretty painful glimpse, of bad religion. He, he puts on display, just sort of lays it out there for us to, to see uh, what it is, what it means, and what are the repercussions of, of bad religion building on this idea that God accepts me because I obey. And he, he puts this on display by, uh, in terms of two encounters that Mark describes for us. And so we have an encounter that begins in verse 18, goes through to verse 22. A second encounter that begins in verse 23 and goes through to verse 28. And so in these two encounters, Mark, as displayed in the life and the teaching of the Lord Jesus, gives us examples of this kind of thinking, this kind of mentality which says, which argues, which affirms, God accepts me because I obey. And we're going to take a glimpse at both this morning, and we're going to do so following the same method, really. Very simple. In each, we have a question. In each encounter, there's a question. So encounter one over here, encounter two over here. There's a question. In each, there is a response. And in each, there is a main point that the Lord Jesus is making. So we begin with the first encounter, verses 18 through 22. The question comes out in the 18th verse. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, that is to the Lord Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. There's the question. So we've got John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, disciples over there, they're fasting. Kind of like John. I mean, John lived a pretty austere existence, ascetic existence. He uh, lived off of locusts and wild honey. His followers seem to be doing the same thing. They're fasting. Hey, look, we've got the Pharisees over here. They fast twice, twice a week. So John's disciples fasting, the Pharisees fasting. Uh, your disciples aren't fasting. So why do John's disciples, the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? That's the question. Then we have the answer, beginning in verse 19 through to verse 22. The answer is simply this. The Lord Jesus provides an illustration, an illustration which they would have understand, understood entirely. He appeals to a wedding feast. And he says, look, you know from experience that at the time of a wedding, uh, there's a huge celebration. Weddings in those days weren't like weddings in our day. You have a wedding, you have a meal, and then the couple go off for a honeymoon for a week or two. That isn't the way it was done in New Testament times. A couple got married, they stuck around for a week or two. And the celebrations went on and on and on, and there was all this festivity and celebration. So he's saying to his audience, look, you know what it's like when the, when the bride and the bridegroom are present and you attend a wedding. It's feasting, feasting, feasting. It would be completely inappropriate for you to fast. Nobody shows up at a wedding and fasts. Why? Because a wedding is a time of celebration. And so it would be, it would be ridiculous for you 
uh, to go to a wedding and fast. Well, here, here's what the Lord Jesus is saying. Uh, the bridegroom is among you. The king is among you. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, it is inappropriate for you to fast. Why would my disciples fast? This is a time of celebration. The king has come. The new age is dawning. The kingdom is among us. And so it would be completely illogical to fast given the presence of the king. And then he reinforces it with two additional illustrations. He says, look, if you've got an old piece of clothing, you don't take a new piece of cloth without shrinking it and attach it to that old piece of clothing. If you do, you ruin it. Similarly, you don't take old wine skins and put new wine into it. If you do, you ruin them. Do you understand the inconsistency here, how illogical it would be? Well, see, it would be illogical to attend a wedding feast, a, a, a cause for celebration, and fast. I am among you. The bridegroom has come among you. The king has come among you. That's why my disciples don't fast. A day will come when they will fast. When I will be taken away and it will be entirely appropriate for them to fast. But not now. This is a time of celebration. That's his answer. And his main point is simply this. I'll sum it up for you in a sentence. Their traditions keep them. Their traditions prevent them from rejoicing in Christ. Now let me explain this carefully, and I'm going to explain it by making three points. The first is this. In the Old Testament, there are two kinds of fasts. There is, firstly, a national fast. One day of the year, the Day of Atonement, the nation of Israel was commanded, required to fast. It's a national fast commanded. There is also in the Old Testament a personal fast. That when people sinned, uh, they would fast as a sign of external remorse, as a sign of contrition. It's never commanded in Scripture. The only fast that is ever commanded in Scripture is the Day of Atonement. Now, it, this is the next point. Fasting is a good thing. Fasting on the Day of Atonement is obviously a good thing because it was commanded. Fasting, when, when an individual falls into sin as an external sign of the sincerity of the repentance, is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. And so John's disciples fast. Why? Because John is preaching a, a message of repentance. And he's calling people to acknowledge their sin, confess their sin, forsake their sin. And so fasting is entirely appropriate to that. The Pharisees, they fast. Why? As an external sign of contrition. Nothing wrong with that. Fasting is a good thing, but understand this. Fasting was never commanded. The only fast that was ever commanded in Scripture applied to that annual feast, the Day of Atonement. And so the third point is this, building on the first two. Fasting has become, for these people, not merely a good thing, but the main thing, to such a degree that it blinds them to Christ. Fasting a good thing in and of itself. It has become the main thing whereby it actually blinds them to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it is a tradition. These fasts are a tradition. They are not mandated nor required in Scripture. They are good in and of themselves if they are an external expression of sincerity of heart when an individual confesses, forsakes, and repents of their sin. But it is not commanded. It is not required. It is not mandated. Their practice of fasting is a tradition. And yet their tradition, a good thing in and of itself, has become the main thing 
to such a degree that they can't see the Lord Jesus Christ. It blinds them, and it keeps them from rejoicing in the king. should have been a time of celebration. The king is standing right in front of them. The wedding feast is taking place. He's there. But they are so gripped with their traditions. They are so overcome by their practices, man-made practices, that they are unable to recognize the cause for celebration which stands in their very midst. Now, friends, we are no different. We easily turn traditions into the main thing, thereby blinding us to the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many, numerous examples of this. I remember one that was particularly painful, thinking back of two brothers, one of whom I knew growing up, and the relationship they had with their father. Uh, The older brother, raised in a Christian home, evangelical, Bible-believing, God-fearing church, and the older brother, at uh, some point in his early 20s, decided he wanted to leave that particular denomination for another denomination. Nothing wrong with the denomination, the church he went to, orthodox, but a different way of doing things from the church he had left. The younger brother abandoned the faith altogether, wanted nothing to do with the Christian faith. Now, here's the sad thing. The father still had a cordial relationship with the younger son who had abandoned the faith, but he would have nothing to do with his older son who had dared leave the church. Why? Because here was a man who had made his traditions the main thing. Here was a man who had made his traditions, traditions associated with his particular church, the main thing, whereby he was blinded to the greater realities and blinded to Christ himself. We do that easily. Traditions. We need to, we need to be, our thinking needs to be very clear here. A tradition is another bad word today, isn't it? It shouldn't be. There is nothing wrong with tradition. Friend. As a family, you need traditions. As a church, we need traditions. We have traditions, lots of them. There is nothing wrong with traditions. We need them to get through life. We need them to structure things in an orderly manner. Nothing wrong with traditions, as long as we never lose sight of the fact that they are traditions. The problem is this, is when traditions, a good thing, become the main thing, whereby they blind us to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a repugnant form of legalism that the Lord Jesus is rebuking in these verses. In the second encounter, same approach. There's a question, there's a response, the main point. The question is found in verses 23 and 24. The Lord Jesus with his disciples, they're out walking through a field, a grain field, The disciples pluck the heads of grain, they eat them. Here's the question in verse 24. The Pharisees were saying to him, that is again, to Christ, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They're working. They're walking along. They're harvesting, and they are eating. They're doing something that they should not be doing on the Sabbath. They're working. Why why aren't they observing the Sabbath? That's the question. We have Christ's response beginning in verse 25 through to verse 28. Matthew gives us a parallel account. In the book of Matthew, chapter 12, the first eight verses. It's interesting. It's interesting to compare with Mark's account because Mark only gives us one argument. Matthew actually gives us 
two arguments. So let me give them both to you right here. Mark gives us the first. Matthew also gives us this argument. It's pretty simple. The Lord Jesus responds to the Pharisees and says, well, don't you know the scriptures? Don't you remember the story of David, greatest king in the history of Israel? Don't you remember that before he became king, he was fleeing from Saul? He came to the high priest's house. He was hungry. His men were hungry. He asked for something to eat. And the high priest gave him what? The showbread. What's the showbread? Twelve loaves. Twelve loaves, which the priests set on the table of showbread in the tabernacle, later the temple. These were loaves they would set on the table of showbread. Twelve loaves, one representing each of the nation, the tribes of Israel. They would set it on the table of showbread every Sabbath. And every Sabbath, when they went in to put fresh bread on the table of showbread, the priests would eat the old bread. And they alone were permitted to eat it. Well, don't you know the scriptures? Don't you remember the story that David asked for something to eat? The priest actually gave him that bread, and he ate it. That's his first argument. Second argument isn't found here in Mark, but Matthew gives it. The Lord Jesus appeals to the priests themselves. And he says, don't you remember, aren't you aware of the fact that even now in the temple, the priests work on the Sabbath? They enter into the outer place, and and they change the bread, and they trim the lamp, and they add oil, and they offer sacrifices. They are working on the Sabbath. And so here are two examples and what the illustrations and what the Lord Jesus is doing in these arguments is he is arguing from the lesser to the greater. And so in the first, he is saying, look, David broke the ceremonial law governing the Sabbath and he ate bread that he wasn't supposed to eat and the scriptures commend him for it. Understand this, something greater than David is here. And in the second argument, again, he is arguing from the lesser to the greater. Look, the priests ministering in the temple who are about the temple's business, they break the ceremonial laws governing the Sabbath all the time because they actually work and do things that are forbidden. Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than David is here, and yet Scripture commends him for breaking the law governing the Sabbath. Something greater than the temple is here, and yet the priests who minister in the temple break the Sabbath. And then he sums it all up with this wonderful declaration, I am even what? The Lord of the Sabbath. And so what's he doing? He's again affirming his authority. And he is driving them all the way back to creation. And he is reminding them of the fact that it was God himself who instituted the Sabbath. And now the Lord Jesus Christ is is breaking these ceremonial laws. They perceive him to be breaking these ceremonial laws governing the Sabbath. And the Lord Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater. Something greater than David is here. Something greater than the temple is here. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one who instituted the Sabbath. I am the one who fulfills all of that ceremonial law governing the Sabbath. I am the one who ultimately, who in alone, Sabbath rest is found. And yet they're blind to it. This is the main point, isn't it? Their regulations, their regulations keep them, regulations governing the Sabbath keep them from resting in Christ. And so in the first encounter, It was their traditions that kept them from rejoicing in Christ. Now it is their regulations that keep them from resting in Christ. Man-made regulations. As a matter of fact, there wasn't anything wrong with the disciples picking picking the grain and eating it. That wasn't forbidden in the law. The problem was that the Pharisees had taken the law and had taken all of those ceremonial laws governing the Sabbath and had built on them. 
their own regulations. Now, James Montgomery Boyce brings this out in one of his books, The Absurdity of It All, concerning the Pharisee's concept of working. It's just by way of illustration. A man is out walking. He spits. Is that work? It depends on what happens to the spit. If it goes into the dirt and makes a slight furrow, then it is plowing, work. If it hits a rock, no work is done. Under this system, being a devout Jew seemed to depend in part on where one spit on Saturdays. That was the absurdity into which their regulations had fallen. Their regulations blind them to the one who actually stands in their midst. You see, they are defining their religion. They are defining faith. They are defining devotion to God. They are defining acceptance with God according to their man-made regulations. And the Lord Jesus will have none of it. And yet their regulations blind them to who the Lord Jesus is. There he stands in their presence and makes this claim, I am Lord of the Sabbath. You go back to that ceremonial law and how the Sabbath was part of Israel's ceremonial religion and all of those laws and rules and regulations that governed the Sabbath and what could be done and what couldn't be done. I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am the fulfillment of all that. And you go back to creation when the Sabbath was first instituted and you recall that the God, having created the heavens and the earth, the entire cosmos, declared that it was very good. And on the seventh day, he rested. That term rest does not imply that, the Lord Jesus, that, that God was tired and needed to recuperate from his work of creation. No, that idea of rest is satisfaction. That God looks upon his handiwork, what he has made on the first six days, he is satisfied with it, he declares it is very good, he rests in it, he derives satisfaction from it. And the Lord Jesus tells us here in Mark, That the Sabbath was made for man. That God instituted that day, one in seven, set it apart for man's benefit. That man might celebrate creation. That man might celebrate God's goodness. That man might rest from his toil. That man might find satisfaction in the labor of his hands. That man might find satisfaction in God. The problem is what? That Sabbath rest was lost by virtue of the fall. And ever since the time of the fall, man has been looking for, earnestly seeking rest. And now the Lord Jesus Christ makes this bold statement, again affirming his authority, again affirming his identity. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, in me you will find Sabbath rest. They can't see it. They can't see it. Why? Because they are blinded by their regulations. And so you have some people here, they've got, they've got these traditions governing fasting. Nothing wrong with fasting. But they have elevated their tradition to the main thing whereby they are blinded to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have this other group over here so concerned about the Sabbath. Nothing wrong with Sabbath keeping in accordance with God's word. But they had built all of these man-made regulations around the Sabbath, governing the Sabbath. And it had become a burden to such a degree that now the very Lord of the Sabbath, the one who is the fulfillment of the Sabbath promise, the one who is man's ultimate rest, they can't see him 
Why? All they can see are their man-made regulations. You see, what we have in both is a performance-based religion. We have men preoccupied with their performance in God's sight. We have men preoccupied with this idea that God's acceptance of me depends ultimately on my obedience. This conviction, this presupposition has led them to what? Elevate their traditions. Elevate their regulations. Whereby they think as long as they conform to these things, God is well pleased with them. All the while, what have they missed? The Lord Jesus Christ himself. Their traditions keep them from rejoicing in Christ. Their regulations keep them from resting in Christ. A friend related to me, he was a missionary in Spain some time ago now, of an incident that really broke his heart and perplexed him. Uh, Several American Christians were visiting from the southern states, visiting a church in southern Spain and um, for a week or two, and the American Christians were, were scandalized. Why? Because at every meal, Spanish Christians pulled out wine. Not only did they drink wine, they made their own wine. And so these American Christians didn't think these Spanish Christians were actually Christians and ended up praying for their salvation. Meanwhile, Spanish Christians didn't think these American Christians were Christians. Why? Because the wives wore makeup. Well, in that part of Spain, Christian women don't wear makeup. So what you have was this following scenario. You had American Christians praying for the salvation earnestly of Spanish Christians and Spanish Christians earnestly praying for the salvation of American Christians. Why? Because both had defined the religion according to their traditions. Both had missed the vitality. Both had missed the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were defining religion. They were defining their religion according to what? External behavior, either their traditions or their regulations, which they themselves had made. And this idea that anybody could depart from their traditions, depart from their regulations, inconceivable. And this is exactly what we have transpiring in this text. We have the Lord Jesus Christ not fasting. We have the Lord Jesus Christ not observing the Sabbath as they think the Sabbath should be observed. And so we have people so devoted to their religion, so devoted to this premise that what I do influences God, that God's acceptance of me is determined by my behavior. They are so committed to that, they cannot see the forest for the trees. They can't see it. As a matter of fact, they hate him as a result of it. How dare he tear down what I have built up? How dare he tear down what I'm resting on? How dare he tear down and challenge and completely reject with the sweep of a hand what I perceive to be essential to serving God. You see, they are at heart, what? Legalists. They are at heart, Harold Abrahams. I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. That is the starting point. I must justify myself before God. God is God's pleasure in me. And God's acceptance of me depends on what I do. That will always lead, that mentality, friend, will always lead to an elevation of tradition or an elevation of regulation to the main thing whereby we're blinded to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, here's our default position. It's described by Timothy Keller. 
is our default position or the default mode of the human heart is to seek to control God through our performance. Did you know that about yourself? It's true about me too. Our default position, so this is a position we go to naturally. It's true of each and every one of us. Is this conviction, this inkling we have deep down inside of us that through our performance we can control God. That if I do enough of this, if I do enough of that, if I buy into this and buy into that, keep away from this, keep away from that, if I construct this world of tradition and regulation, that somehow this will influence God. It is the heart of a legalist. Uh, what are we here? Maybe 180 people this morning. You know how many legalists there are here this morning? About 180. We are all legalists by nature. This is, this is our knee-jerk response, and it is our default position that our performance, our behavior, is the determining factor in what God does or how God thinks or how God views us or how God accepts us. It is the spirit of legalism which will always manifest itself, again, let me repeat it, in the elevation of something like fasting, a tradition, in the elevation of something like Sabbath-keeping in the context of the text, a regulation, good things in and of themselves in this context, but to such a degree where they become the main thing and the Lord Jesus Christ is obscured from view. We can do this with our doctrines. I'm all for doctrinal accuracy. You know that's true. I think doctrinal accuracy is so important. But I'm well aware of the fact that you can be doctrinally accurate without knowing Christ. It can become an idol. We can do that with our ministries. We're a busy church. We're an active church. Programs going on all over the place. Boy, God must be impressed with us. And we elevate our activity and turn it into almost an idol. Meanwhile, our spiritual lives could be completely barren, void of any spiritual vitality. We can do it with our experiences. I wake up this morning and I'm on a big mountain high. And a great feeling of exhilaration. Boy, God must be pleased with me. And tomorrow I wake up in the depths of despair. Oh, God must be displeased with me. And we turn our emotions and our subjective experiences into idols. We can do it with our morals. Never done what he did. Proud to say, a little. And I'm not doing what she does. Again, proud to say, just a little bit. I'm one of the good ones. You know, I don't even really have a testimony because I was raised in a Christian home, so no real conversion. What a misunderstanding of conversion that is. Raised in a, conver- a Christian home, not raised in a Christian home. Conversion is a miracle and the radical transformation of a depraved sinner. Either way you line it up, it is a miracle. And sin, in its essence, is not defined by what we do have done externally, although those are sins, trespasses, transgressions. Sin is defined internally by our open defiance and neglect and rejection of God. And yet we can fall into this habit of almost elevating our moral rectitude, our ethics, our behavior, and think, well, somehow this scores brownie points with God. We can do it with our causes. Well, I'm involved in this. 
and I give my time to working with those people. I, I devote so much time and expend so much energy and give so much money and resources to doing that. And I'm traveling different places, and I'm trying to minister to the destitute, and I'm doing things right. I'm doing things as God expects me to do. And boy, there better be blessing coming down the highway because I'm just, I've, just, I've just lined everything up right, and I'm doing it right. And that can become what? An idol. We can do it with our distinctives, church distinctives. I was raised in a church, and I'm thankful, so thankful for my upbringing. But I was raised in a church that often reminded us within the church that we alone were remembering God in Christ in his own appointed way, which was to say no one else was. And there was nothing wrong with the way we were remembering Christ, but neither was there anything uniquely biblical about the way we were remembering Christ. But our church distinctives have become the main thing, whereby for some, I dare say, the Lord Jesus had been lost to view altogether. We do this easily because religion, friend, and we need to understand this, religion can be an idol. And when religion becomes an idol, it is the most grotesque idol out there. When we fall into this trap of bad religion, lose sight of good religion, that God accepts me because Christ obeyed. End of story. When we succumb, even an inkling to this idea, God accepts me because I obey, what we will build on that will invariably become grotesque, an idol of the heart, whereby we believe that we are controlling God through our performance. Here again is good religion. Let me conclude with this. God accepts us because Christ obeyed. Christ lived the life we were required to live. Christ died the death. We were condemned to die. We believe in Christ. Christian, hear this, hold on to it and never let go of it. God is satisfied with us. Because he is satisfied with Christ. That is good religion. God does not accept you, friend, because of your performance. He does not accept me because of my performance. There is nothing we do, don't do, that somehow merits favor, blessing, acceptance with God. All that we have, all that we ever have, is the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be one with him because he has taken hold of us by the Holy Spirit. We have taken hold of him by faith, and now we are God's beloved. Why? Because we are one with his beloved one. Let's pray together and seek the Lord's blessing upon his word. Our Father, give us understanding that we may keep your word and observe it with an undivided heart. Incline our hearts to your precepts and promises and not to self-interest. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. O Lord, in your righteousness, give us life. This we pray. Amen.